Take your copy of the Bible and turn to Isaiah chapter uh, 21. As we continue working our way through this wonderful and challenging book, Isaiah 21, starting in verse 1, this is God's word for you today. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. As whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land. A stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam. Lay siege, O Medea. All the sighing she has caused I bring to an end. Therefore my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I'm bowed down so that I cannot hear. I'm dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I long for has been turned for me into trembling. They prepare the table. They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shield. For thus the Lord said to me, Go, set a watchman, let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come riders, horsemen, and pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. O my threshed and winnowed one, what have I... What I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. The oracle concerning Duma. One is calling to me from Seir. Watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night? And the watchman says, morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, come back again. The oracle concerning Arabia. In the thickets in Arabia you will lodge, O caravans, of the Dedanites. To the thirsty bring water, meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Tamar. For they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, from the press of battle. For thus the Lord said to me, Within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end. And all the remainder of the archers of the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thanks for your word. It's good, right, true, perfect, useful. We acknowledge that we are not good, right, true, perfect, or useful. (laughs) And so we ask now that your spirit would be pleased to bring us in submission to the word. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. I want you to do a mental exercise. Don't do this out loud. A mental exercise. 
something pretty simple. I want you to, in your mind right now, picture a penguin. Pretty easy, a penguin. You would think, actually, in a room this size, that would be a fairly kind of uniting task, wouldn't it? For all of us right now, simultaneously, we're going to kind of see in our head the image of a penguin. I mean, honestly, how diverse could the pictures in our brain of a penguin actually be? I mean, real and truly, how, how different could it be? Actually, I, I was reading an article on this this week, actually. It was a study that was conducted. I forget which university conducted it, and they did this exact task, a larger sample size than we have here, but to have people kind of picture a penguin in your mind. And honestly, as I was doing it, I was thinking, okay, realistically, like, how much diversity could there be in the picture of a penguin in my brain? I mean, it's a penguin, right? It can't be that different. And through the end of this study, they actually, <laughs> they found that just a simple thing like a penguin, an animal that does not have that much diversity, had 30 different connotations. 30. I'm like, wow! Whether you mean the, you know, the small little adorable one, or the big tall one, or the fat one, or the skinny one, or the emperor one that has the goofy looking thing on top of its head, or you picture actually two penguins with a baby sitting on mama's feet or dad's feet, you know, huddling against the cold, or whether the penguins are sliding, or whether they're not, or whether they're food for another animal, or whether they're eating uh, fish in their own right, or whether you're seeing them at the zoo or not. It, It was amazing how when they began to actually look at how the brain works, something so simple and so unifying as a penguin actually isn't simple and unifying at all. And the point they were making is it's actually one of the things that makes human language so complex is that when we say something so obvious as penguin, your listening audience hears something so obvious as penguin is just not the same penguin. And as a result, there's miscommunications and misunderstandings. And as Christians, we understand that, don't we? We can say, well, that's partially the product of the fall. Partially, it's the product of the curse the Lord gave at at, uh, Babel, where he he cursed humanity so that our communication would intentionally be frustrated and would be plagued by misunderstanding. So when you say penguin, it could mean something completely different, much less if you say something so complicated as love or sin. It's interesting, though, as you begin to think about kind of how language works, and this is a thing I think about a lot as I use it for a living. It's kind of the number one thing I do is I read and then talk. But to actually begin to think about the limitations of language. Now, this is a fun one to kind of sit and contemplate, something I, again, do with more regularity than I probably would like to admit, is to admit that there are just some things that language cannot possibly explain. It just can't. And in fact, actually, we know this intuitively, and when we run out of words, that's usually when we switch to analogies. And then when we run out of analogies, that's when we just get frustrated, most of us. An example would be, uh, tell me how much you love your children. Explain to me how much you love your kids. Could you do that? No, you cannot do that. There's no possible world in which you can explain to me how much you love your kids. In fact, actually, you have to explain it tangentially. I love them so much I would die for them and I wouldn't even think about it. 
That's not how much you love them. (laughs) That's what you're willing to do for them. Two totally different things, but the thing you're willing to do helps me understand how much you love them. Well, I love them so much that when they're, you know, gone, I miss, we just, we can't explain it. Language has limitations, and it's important that we understand that and be aware of it and uh, kind of uh, approach our lives from the, uh, a very full and robust understanding. The Lord has designed language, but it's only designed to go so far. There is a point where language cannot carry us far enough to understand what's actually happening. And again, the great example there, uh, how much I love my children. I could talk to you for the next two hours about how much I love my children, but there's only so far the language can carry you. At some point, you're just gonna be like, okay, you gotta stop talking, man, I'm done with this. There are many areas in the Bible where we run into similar kinds of moments, similar points where we we interact with a concept and we say, we know the Lord is using human language But the vocabulary that we have, the mental complexity that we have, the the ability to understand can only take us so far. It's like a a PhD in physics trying to explain physics to a two-year-old. There's only so far it's going to be able to take you. After that, sorry, you're just not going to understand that much. And we run into a number of areas in the Bible. We know when we speak of God's infinity, that he's unlimited, that he's, he's outside of time and space, and it makes our heads hurt, and it kind of confuses us. Language can only take us so far. When we speak of heaven, I love this one. The Bible doesn't actually directly explain it that fully. It explains it tangentially. It explains it in, in ways that we, we long to hear of it, but not with the reality behind it. It explains to us that the new heavens and new earth are a place where there's no tears connected to sorrow. I don't know what that means. How do I deal with sad things? Are there sad things? Are there no sad things? How do I deal with the people that aren't there? How, how does that work? Now, the streets are paved with gold. Well, I've already said this before. I don't, I don't think they actually are. I think that's a, uh, a metaphor because gold is perhaps one of the worst paving materials on the entire planet. But the things that we think are most valuable are just not even worth treading on because they're useless in comparison. I don't know what's better beyond that. <laughs> and language doesn't carry us far enough. We're, we're left with just this kind of grand hope. I think the one that is perhaps the most terrible of that, though, is that when it goes to speak about God's wrath, language isn't enough there either. And in fact, actually, when we get chance to to speak about hell or we get chance to speak about judgment or we get to speak about destruction in the Bible, it's largely done through analogy. Again, tangential, it uses the language of kind of aside to help us understand the reality of what's going on, and chapter 21 is one of those chapters. Chapter 21 is a chapter about the wrath of God. It's a chapter about how serious sin is and the consequences of sin. But realistically, We do not ever read the comprehensive nature of the wrath of God. It's one of those things that cannot be read. It can only be experienced. And praise God, I'll never have to. 
But it is here explained kind of tangentially through oracles against Babylon and Edom and Arabia to help us kind of understand in our minds how God thinks about sin. And just highlight a a couple of things, really. Uh, We're going to have four points that will go through fairly quickly. The first thing I want to kind of draw forth is uh, to think through in these uh, first handful of verses, first five verses or so, is that as Christians, we are to be on guard the dangers of a dying world. On guard the dangers of a dying world. Uh, Verse 1 introduces the oracle here. This is a proclamation, a judgment against Babylon. But interestingly, it's not labeled correctly, not incorrectly, but here, the wilderness of the sea, instead drawing forth the imagery that your average Jew would have viewed with total chaos and consternation. Your average Jew hated the sea. The sea is unpredictable. It's unreliable. You don't know what the weather is going to be. And you think about the part of the uh, sea that they got to interact with, the Mediterranean. It's famous Sea of Galilee as well, both famous for having terrible weather uh, that is unpredictable and unreliable. Here, this language introducing really kind of the chaos of the world, uh, the, the kind of chaos of society, of culture, of the destruction of sin. And we would hope that that would be where it kind of ends, but then as it continues into verse 1, it seems to just go worse. As whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land. Now you have this picture of a gigantic storm rolling in, rolling in from the wilderness, and rolling in from the wilderness, bearing kind of all of the sand and the dirt and the debris that would kind of carry with it. This is not a thing that here in the south we would probably be able uh, to um, kind of relate to that closely. I mean, periodically we'll have those kind of storms where you can look off over in that direction. It's like the giant wall of black clouds that we kind of see. But here in this part of the country, we probably can't relate to this one too clearly because we have too many hills and too many trees, which is a really nice thing. I like both of those. But if you've ever spent time in Texas or in Oklahoma or Kansas, you would be able to see kind of a little bit more of what this looks like. That's why all of your uh, tornado chasers, your storm chasers, all live out in the Midwest. Because you can see the storm 30, 40, 50 miles off, rolling in this huge wall of trouble coming. That's what's being presented here is this gigantic storm kind of is descending on the land the wrath of God. It's told as a vision to Isaiah. You would think that, you would hope at least, all visions given by God, all interactions with his word, all interactions with his truth would be those interactions that that edify you, that, that build you up, that make you happy, that you walk away feeling empowered and ready to go, right? That's every time I read the Bible, I'm supposed to feel better about myself and my life. No, wrong, Instead, verse 2, the, the vision comes, and here you have uh, what's being portrayed as uh, either Syria or um, the Persians uh, that are actively betraying Babylon that are going to come to the table and destroy, and there's arguments 
between commentators as to what year this is. Uh, probably 689, but again, not uber clear, and I'm not going to get hung up on it. Instead, you get to see, I think, what is clearer and what's much more important, Isaiah's response. Verses 3 and 4, Isaiah gets to interact with the wrath of God. He gets to see it. And he gets to see it in vision form. Now again, it's, it's seen in, in many ways kind of like a fever dream, this vision that's very clear in expressing God's truth. It's done with, uh, with great vibrancy, with great clarity. It's, it's a lived experience in many ways. But here the problem is that it's terrible. The wrath of God is awful. It's overwhelming and it's dreadful. And so you get to see verses 3 and 4, what Isaiah's perspective is on it. Now, let's be reminded just briefly why we're in chapter 21 is because chapter 20 is the weirdest chapter in the entire Bible. Because we've gotten to find out that Isaiah's ministry is the weirdest ministry in the entire Bible. Because in chapter 20, we've already realized Isaiah is the man who has seen the glory of God in a unique and special way. He had a vision where he's brought into the throne room and he got to observe the glory of God. And he's given a very specific task in his ministry that he's going to evangelize and no one's ever going to believe. Uh, The more he preaches, the more judgment it's going to be. And then in chapter 20, as a proof of the judgment and destruction coming, the Lord commanded him uh, to go naked for three and a half years as his pastoral ministry. Now, Isaiah's not uh, a rural pastor. He wasn't a prophet living out in the middle of nowhere where he might have been able to fake this and just not see his neighbors for a couple of years. But we know that he labored uh, kind of within the halls of power largely. And so here you have for three and a half years this man who's been living in shame who's been living in judgment, who's been living a walking example of the wrath of God. He he has been an outcast. Nobody would want to talk to him. I mean, would you want to go sit down and have a conversation with that weird prophet guy who's been naked at this point for two years? Like, nobody's talking to this guy. But that all changes in verse 3 when he sees the wrath of God. My stomach was filled with anguish. The best description he has is a woman going into labor. Now, never been in labor, can't comment on that, watched it happen. It's not a thing to take lightly. All-consuming, full-body experience, pain and trouble, anguish. In fact, actually, he's so overwhelmed that the last two clauses there in verse 3, I think, are just devastating to think about. He's so overwhelmed that he's, he's bowed down, he's cowered, he's hiding from the wrath of God. He can't even hear anymore, he can't even see anymore. It's so overwhelmed him. To the point in verse 4, you get the impression his heart's staggering. It's either he's just crippling pain or perhaps it's such stress that it's actually having a physical toll. His horror has overwhelmed him. <laughs> the sleep he was hoping for, the rest he was hoping for, well, that's gone. Because now, instead of resting, he has nightmares of the wrath of God. This is horrible. And again, you get to see, again, the limitations of language. It's not describing it directly how bad it's going to be. It's describing it tangentially. And we see how bad it is through the response of one of the toughest men on the planet. Isaiah is not a weakling. 
You don't pastor in the halls of power naked for three and a half years and walk away being some sort of coward or, you know, weak-willed man. And make a spine of iron out of you. He's a tough dude. And yet here, this vision is so gripping, it, it breaks him. And then verse 5, kind of the contrast, why it's so overwhelming and profound. Because while in 3 and 4 you get to see this just terror, the trouble of the wrath of God, in verse 5 you see what the world is doing with it. They prepare the table. They spread out the rugs. Those are the chairs that you would lay on to eat. They eat and they drink. So this horrible kind of contrast between this impending doom of the wrath of God And a culture that says, eat and drink and be merry. Live your life the way you want it. Enjoy the pleasures that life has to offer. Enjoy the moments and time that you have to offer. Again, you live your life. You, You live your truth. You live your reality. And it's that moment, man, it's like, whew, If we actually kind of stop and reflect and pause and catch our breath, you think, man, is he writing in ancient Israel or is he writing in in modern America? Was he writing in 700, 720-something B.C.? Was he writing like last week or next week? A nation that's so busy uh, setting out parties and setting out pleasures and setting out delights and joys and having no thought to the impending doom, the ending of this created order as we know it. I mean, this created order, this one that we currently live in, will stop, it will end. It it had a starting point. It's going to have an ending point. And the continuity between this life and the next one, this creation and the next one is very low. You're not taking your toys with you. You're not taking your treats with you. You're not taking your pleasures or your delights with you. You take your God with you. You see, there's a danger here that we might, in fact, actually fall into the problem of Babylon. It's the problem that the uh, Persians have after Babylon, the Medes as well. It's a problem that all of these ancient evil nations have, which is they're so preoccupied with their pleasures and their delights. They're so preoccupied with their national victories. They're so preoccupied with their affluence because that's largely what's happening at this point in history. These nations are entering into affluence for the first time. They're so preoccupied with their money that they lose the focus on their souls. A culture that's dying on the vine, a a nation that's withering and getting ready to be consumed by the wrath of God, and the people are only partying. There's no grief over death. There's no grief over sin. There's no concern over the life to come. There's no concern over what happens to my eternal state. It's just fun all the time. 
which of course we know never lasts. I do worry or wonder sometimes if perhaps maybe the American church or uh, parts of even the Reformed tradition, we've quietly slid into that a little bit. Where we, we spend such an, uh, a large amount of energy trying to be grateful for the blessings that God's given and trying to be good stewards for the blessings that God's given that maybe sometimes we forget that this entire created order could end this afternoon or tomorrow or the day after or 300,000 years from now. I don't know when, (laughs) but it will end. And the ridiculous dog that we have at our house that runs around and causes a mess in the house, he's going to end and it's going to stop. And the house that we love that provides shelter our family is going to end. It's going to stop. And all of the delights that we have or the foods that you enjoy, they're going to end. They're going to stop. This created order will end. Maybe it's important for us to think about that just a little bit more. Well, I I think it's easy for a certain kind of person to think about that, right? For those of us that are kind of living the good life, it's hard to think about that. It's easy to forget when your life is good, when your life is filled with pleasures, when you have uh, mostly enough money, when you have mostly good health, when you have mostly good relationships. It's easy to be preoccupied with the good things of life and to forget that sin has consequences, that this created order will end. But for those who have immense physical pain, for those that have been through immense emotional pain, for those who have suffered, those who have borne great grief, those are our brothers and sisters that tend to long for the life to come, don't they? I mean, some of you know that. Some of you in the room have actually asked the Lord to take you home because it hurts too bad. To die would be easier than to live. And I I love that there's actually an answer in the text to that. There's kind of a second idea introduced. This first one, you have kind of looming in the background that the backdrop of the chapter is a warning against the danger of living in a dying world. But verses 6 through 9 provides a bit of a contrast. Where here, there's a, a new figure introduced who's going to provide kind of a new idea in the text, which is this kind of idea for God's people of, yeah, you, you live carefully, but you live patiently because victory is coming. You live patiently because victory is guaranteed. You live patiently because God's people win in the end because God does. Verse 6, the Lord tells Isaiah what to do in this vision of sorts. Go and set a watchman. You, you appoint somebody who would be up on a high point, would be able to call down to the city who's going to watch. And what is he going to watch for? Well, when he sees riders or horsemen of any kind, then let him listen and let him call out. Basically, he gets to watch what's coming into the city to pay attention to it and then to announce it to the nation. And what exactly is it he's supposed to announce? Well, verse 8, he's going to watch. Verse 9, what happens? Riders show up, horsemen in pairs. You have uh, these uh, soldiers that come riding in and they bear news. 
And what's the news that they bear? Fallen. Fallen is Babylon. The, the, the Lord's enemies have been destroyed. Now, again, for us in our time and space, we, we hear that fallen, fallen is Babylon, and we think, well, I mean, well, yeah, obviously. I mean, let's be honest. Half of you probably don't even know where Babylon is, right? You're like, okay, big deal that Babylon's fallen. Like, it's a city. I don't know where it is. It's in the same category as like Atlantis, except I think it was probably true at one point, right? I'm not sure about Atlantis. No, the, the, probably the better reading of this kind of in terms of emotional punch would be to say like, Washington, D.C. has fallen. Or Moscow. Or London. Like one of those cities that when it's at its heyday, you would have thought, there's no way that Babylon could fall. It's, what, what have we said about our, our country? It's too big to fall. It's too important to fall. Or with the Titanic, right? It, it, it's unsinkable. It, it can't be crushed. It can't be destroyed. That's where Babylon would have been. It would have been one of those nations that you would have said, there's no way they can fall. They're too powerful. They're too strong. They're too mighty. And yet, interestingly, their kind of reign in world history is very short <laughs> because they destroyed the people of God, so God killed them and wiped them off the map. And now they don't exist anymore at all. What's being presented here is this complete and total destruction of Babylon in verse 9. And interestingly, now the subtext becomes clear that in so many ways the entirety of the Old Testament is really an apologetic it's an argument for God's character. What kind of God is he? Verse 9 explains, oh yeah, by the way, Babylon, they're getting ready to destroy the people of God. They're going to wipe them off the map and they're going to treat them terribly. And you could mistake that for Babylon's victory. You could say, oh yeah, by the way, look, you know, Babylon, they're, the, they're powerful. Their gods are more powerful. They're bigger and they're better. Oh, but what is the reality Fallen, fallen is Babylon, the nation's going to be removed, and in fact, God will destroy them, but will destroy all of their gods, because he is the great and mighty God. All the carved images of her gods, he has shattered to the ground. They're destroyed. They're removed. They're broken. Now, maybe we might be able to kind of fast forward in time and fast forward in redemptive history and give a bit of an application for us as we think through this. Realistically, the backdrop, principally, the backdrop is no different. The setting to this play is no different in Isaiah's time than it is to ours, where we have a God who is in control of all creation, who hates sin and is going to destroy it. That has never changed. It hasn't changed. It's not going to change. In fact, actually, we live again with that same backdrop to the play where the Lord is going to have judgment day in which all sin is accounted for and dealt with. There will be a day in which all of his enemies are destroyed. There will be a day in which all of our enemies are destroyed. It's one of my favorite catechism questions where it's talking about this one. What are the benefits of redemption for Christians kind of at this point in church history? And it, it says that the Lord Christ will destroy all of his and our enemies and we will be vindicated that we didn't waste our lives. 
And perhaps here as we kind of think through this, the application might be for us today kind of thinking, okay, the backdrop is the same, but the foreground has changed a little bit. Here, Isaiah's message is for them to be patient. Look, Babylon's going to come, and it's going to destroy God's people. Babylon's, they're going to be bad. I mean, the things that God's people have to experience through Babylon is unspeakably bad, insufferably bad. But you have this kind of promise looming in the background that, hey, yeah, you go through this and you be patient because God wins in the end and Babylon doesn't. Yeah, you, you might be starving for a season, but God wins in the end and Babylon doesn't. Yes, it's going to be bad. It's going to be really bad. But God wins in the end, and Babylon doesn't. And maybe for us, we might be able to think and kind of maybe apply that a little bit differently and be able to kind of insert the, the troubles that we now struggle through in our time. Yeah, your temptation or your battles with your physical pain, your struggles with cancer, the bullies that you experience at school, the loneliness that you think is debilitating and overwhelming, the sadness that clouds your judgment to the point where you can't even think, right? That depression that keeps you from getting out of bed that ruins your appetite and you don't know what to... That part hasn't changed. That we are still called as God's people to be patient, to, to bear up with strength, to be strong and courageous under great suffering. Why? Because we know our Lord wins. It's fixed. It's, it's, it's a permanently and fully established reality that at the end of this created order, our God wins. And because He wins, I win. And so do you. In fact, actually, it should in some sense be able to kind of give us a little bit of patience to endure, to stay strong and to make it. Years ago, I don't normally do this, and I'm still going to do it anyways, and I don't really care. It's a sports illustration. Half of you stopped listening. Years ago, my favorite sports team, doesn't matter which one it is, you know already, played in one of the biggest tournaments in the world. It's basically the professional version of the World Cup made it all the way to the final, and they went on to win it. Now, I had been told, I knew in advance before I ever sat down to watch the game, I knew they won, which was really shocking because the first half of the soccer game was an absolute mess. In the biggest game of this club's career, they went down three to nothing in the first half. And if you follow soccer at all, three to nothing lead is basically insurmountable at the professional level. You can't beat that. There's no coming back from it. Now, it made that viewing experience very different. Watching my team go down one to nothing, go down two to nothing, go down three to nothing in the first half, and know in my head, they win in the end. I got to keep watching. I got to see what happens. How do you go down three to nothing in the first half and win in the end? It doesn't make any sense at all. How is this going to happen? I got to finish the game. Three to one. Three to two. Three to three. Win in penalty kicks. <laughs> After two hours of soccer. Amazing. One of the greatest games ever played. 
Now, realistically, if I didn't know how the ending was, do you think I'm, I, I might have not even finished that game, right? Three to nothing in the first half has all the makings of a seven to one in the second half. I might not even want to finish that. It puts a little bit of a different perspective. Now, friends, now this is, again, I I would say maybe for us even. You think about your own lives. Some of us, we're like, hey, I'm up three to oh in the first half. This is great. But not everybody in the room feels that way. In fact, actually, there are probably a lot of us in here that think we're maybe down one to nothing. Maybe down two to nothing. And I guarantee you, we got a couple in here that think they're down three to nothing or worse. And I love the fact that it changes it. To know that, look, because Jesus wins, we win. And it's not up for negotiation because the game's already over, it's already finished. We know which team wins. We just got to finish watching the game. And unfortunately, in many cases, we can't fast forward anymore, like I could. So we have to be patient. Ride it out. (laughs) Trust the Lord. Victory is going to happen. In fact, I love that's actually the next section you have, which is kind of almost comedically sarcastic, the next oracle. The oracle concerning Duma, the Edomites here. One's calling to me from the Edomites. Hey, watchman, what's the time of night? Now, again, for us, this is a kind of ridiculous question because uh, we all have phones or watches or things that keep time for us. But this actually be a really important thing is if you've you know, been asleep for a couple of hours, wake up and have no idea what time it is. It's the middle of the night. It's dark. How would you find out what time it is? You could go call the town watchman if they're keeping track of how things are and what time it is. You'd be able to go up to him and say, hey, what time is it? So what we have here in verse 11 is that very question. Hey, excuse me, sir, what's the time? Excuse me, sir, what's the time? And what does the sir respond with? The best answer ever. Well, it's kind of almost morning, but it's kind of also night. And if you'd really like to know, you should come back later. This is the wonderful Willy Wonka answer. It's my favorite kind of answer. It's a total non-answer. Because what is he actually teaching here? It's like, you, you want to know, but you, that's not our, it's not our time to know right now. The emphasis is on patience, not knowledge. The emphasis is on rest and continuance and courage and perseverance, not on immediacy. Like realistically, again, think about how differently we might live our lives if we know the exact moment that, uh, that Jesus was coming back. I mean, most of us would say, well, if I know the exact moment that Jesus was coming back, I would, I would plan accordingly. I would live my life in a better way. I would know exactly it. And I would say, friends, you know exactly when your taxes are due and you still spend all your money before you have to pay them. If you can't even plan for your taxes every year, how do you think you'd plan for the second coming? We wouldn't, would we? We'd like to pretend that we would, but we wouldn't. Instead, this kind of idea here is you, there's an idea of patience, again, not because of the victory of it, and that was the previous section, but now the patience because of the unknown of it. I know Jesus wins. I know the second coming happens. I know the judgment of the wicked is a firmly fixed thing. I know sinners will be punished. God's people will be provided for. I know it will happen. I have to be patient because I know it's going to happen. But I also have to be patient because I don't know when. 
Right? I, I don't know when. I, I can't, you know, scream at my neighbors and say, you know, damn you, I know you're going to hell because I don't know that. They might actually become Christians next week and they're the people I get to spend eternity with. They're part of those that win. I don't know. I have to behave differently and be patient because I don't know. I have to evangelize and love. I have to be gentle and kind. I have to maintain the ethics of the kingdom of God because I don't know when this second coming takes place and neither do you. But the comforting thing, very quickly, is while the passage ends. What you have, verse 13 through the end of the chapter, the oracle concerning Arabia, and it's, um, this one's really nebulous and difficult. You have uh, refugees that are fleeing from an enemy, and as they flee, they're going into hiding because there's kind of no protection or safety for them, uh, and the emphasis is whatever they were running from, and in the original, that's the key kind of buzzword you see here. It's from, 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 from. They, they have to get away because the victory of the opposing force is so comprehensively great, there's no escaping it. Which is why you get the summary statement in verse 16, thus says the Lord, within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all of the glory of this kingdom will be destroyed because God will win. It's a comprehensive and complete and total victory. Now, this is perhaps maybe where I would end with this. The Bible is one book. It tells the same story from beginning to end, and it tells it in a way that's designed uh, for us to understand. It's baby talk. Uh, again, it's the infinitely wise God trying to communicate to men and women, boys and girls, and he's perfectly successful at exactly what he wants to do. We're just a lot of times so dumb that it makes it very difficult for us. But the story is the same story start to finish. That sin is a problem. It was a problem from the Garden of Eden when Adam sinned and when Eve sinned. Eve's sin was her problem. Adam's sin was all of our problem. And from that moment in time, everything after that is a revelation of God's love in reconciling his own people back to himself, of taking his people, Seth, Abel, Noah, David, Abraham, Moses, out of order, you and me, and reconciling us to himself. Now, it's not just, as some kind of parts of the church incorrectly talk about, it's not just like a get-out-of-jail free card, like Monopoly. It's not just a, here's your get-out-of-hell free card. Like, you don't go to hell, and that's it. But that story of redemption, kind of from the beginning all the way, well, I guess backwards for you, from the beginning all the way to the end, is designed how we live today. And that victory that was accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago is designed to impact how you live today. And in this passage, what's showing and highlighting for us is, one, that sin's not to be taken lightly, nor the world that is infatuated with it. But two, we get to be patient in how we live because we know we win. And honestly, friends, some of you maybe kind of forgotten a little bit that Jesus wins. And maybe because you've forgotten a little bit that Jesus wins, you've lost a little bit of the joy that comes from knowing that if you're patient long enough, you'll get to experience that victory yourself. 
Because this is, I, I love this. If you are in Christ Jesus, can you ultimately lose in the long run? No. I mean, you may make dumb decisions in the short run. You may make your life harder every day. I mean, I've done it. I get it. But in the long run, you can't. Because the Lord loves his people, and his victory is complete and comprehensive. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that Jesus wins. Thank you that he won on the cross. He's winning now, and that we get to ride the coattails of that victory. Lord, would you bless us in your service for Christ's sake. Amen.